This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Scripture this morning is Acts 14, starting in verse 21 and going to verse 28. This is the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. It's the word of the Lord. Morning, Redemption. Always winter, but never Christmas. Am I right? Uh, I like the snow, but I'm uh, I'm ready for spring. I'll be honest. Uh, so I was uh, just finished out my junior year in college, actually heading into my senior year, and I was doing a wilderness trip, a canoe trip up in Canada. Um, I was a guide at the time, and on this particular trip, there were um, some buddies of mine who were soccer players and gym rats who decided to come along with us. And I, if you didn't know, I've been about this size since 10th grade, so you can imagine what I look like compared to some gym rats on this wilderness trip. Now, when you're on these wilderness trips, you have to, it's, it's a canoe trip, so you're doing a lot of paddling, uh, but it's not like one giant lake. You're going to different lakes. So you got to get from one lake to another lake. You guys know how to do that? If you're from the south and you don't know how to speak properly, you say portage. I blame it on Michigan. Sorry, Michiganders. It's a portage, okay? You carry your canoe. And carrying a canoe, let me describe this for you. Um, you got to get out of the water, right? So you, you splash into the water because you better not scrape the bottom of that canoe, especially one like that. That's a Winona. That's like a $3,000 canoe. Um, so you got to splash in the water, grab that canoe, and there's a, like, there's a technique to it. you got to reach down like this and cross your arms a little bit. And in one swoop, because you got to break that seal with the water, right? In one swoop, you put it up on your head. Okay, that's just the start. It gets better from here because now you have to carry that canoe to another lake. And some of these portage trails are anywhere from one to three miles long. So you got this canoe on your head. You're like this. If you're lucky, you get the Winona. Probably not. You probably get the 60-pound canoe. That's one right there is about 30 pounds. You got a 60-pound pack with all your gear for the week on your back. It's the middle of summer. If it's the middle of summer, you got mosquitoes and black flies to deal with. Your hands are holding the canoe, so you're not swatting those things. Right? If you can try, but then your canoe goes to the ground. Um, you're sweating like crazy. Oh, remember you're just in the water? So you're soaked from at least the bottom of your feet to your knees for three miles walking around in wet shoes. Okay? You're walking down the trail. It's a grand time. People love these trips. It's great. Uh, it's beautiful when you don't have a canoe on your head. 
and just looking at the ground in front of you. So you take these trips, and I walk in to the first portage of this trip. I grab my canoe, and I just flip it on my head. I've done these plenty of times. And I can't tell you what the face of the guys that saw me do this was who lifts 180 pounds on the bench because I was way down the trail before they even got theirs out of the water. They were struggling. And I do remember seeing their faces as I was waiting for them at the other end because they were just in awe. Like, this is way harder than they expected. These canoes aren't light at all. They seem light. I mean, 60 pounds and they're benching 180. This should have been easy. But no one told them it was going to be easy. We had prepared them ahead of time over and over. This is hard. This is a wilderness trip. You're not going to find it easy. You're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. But they had in their heads, man, we're strong. We're soccer players. We're tough. We can do this. And I find that so many Christians, including myself, get really surprised when life and gospel ministry isn't easy. Now, we'd never confess that with our mouths, would we? We'd never actually say that out loud. We know we're supposed to say that life is hard, that ministry is hard. But that idea subtly gets snuck into our minds somehow and embeds itself in there. And I can prove it to you. How do you respond when difficulties come to life? You get angry? I know I do. And the anger is a sign that somehow we have this idea in our head that we have a right to ease. We have a right to a pain-free life. We have a right to comfort. And I don't find that anywhere in this book. I may find it in my constitution, but I don't base my life on that. We have to go to Scripture. Look at what 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12 says. When it talks about Paul's writing to a young pastor, Timothy, about gospel ministry. He says, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra with persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, here it is, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? What's interesting is the cities that Paul mentions here. They sound familiar? I just read them. We're going to talk about those cities here in a minute. But the question is, if this is what's going on, this is what gospel ministry is like, like why would we do this? And and we see it, right? You you know it's going to be hard. We have to be honest. It's going to be hard. And we naturally start to pull away from the things God has called us to. Pull away from obedience because we know that life is going to be hard. That ministry is going to be hard. But what I tell you this morning, this is what I think our text is pointing us today, is, is in the difficulties and challenges of gospel ministry, God is demonstrating for you immeasurable grace. God is demonstrating that he is for you. 
Because listen, God's grace is not just the message that we're asking you to preach to your neighbors. It's not the message of our gospel ministry. It is also the very fuel and energy and foundation of your gospel ministry. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. And that's why our big idea for today is this. I will rely on God's grace as the fuel for my gospel ministry. And what I want to look at today is four demonstrations of God's grace in your gospel ministry. Four demonstrations of God's grace in your gospel ministry. Four demonstrations that he is for you. I want to see that in our text today. Let's start with the first one. Coincidentally enough is your trials. God is demonstrating he's for you in your trials. Let's Check out verse 21 again. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, we are reminded again of the reality of trials. So if you remember where Paul and Barnabas have been, um, last week, they were preaching in Derby, and we saw a lot of converts there. So they're leaving the city of Derby, and they're making a trek through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Now, whenever this is a really important principle of Bible study. It's very easy, particularly in books like Acts, narratives, to see names of cities that are really hard to pronounce, names that are really difficult to pronounce. You're like, ah, I can't pronounce that. That's not English. I'm going to skip over it. Don't do that. Pay very close attention because Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch are very significant cities. What happened in those cities the past of month that we've been studying these, this missionary journey? You guys remember? Those are cities where Paul and Barnabas planted churches. They're also cities where Paul and Barnabas were driven out of. They were persecuted in those cities. Paul was stoned in one of those cities. And what did they do? They jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire, didn't they? They went right back. Why would they do that? If you were driven out of a city, persecuted out of a city, would you go back? Well, I think our text tells us. And you use a little bit of sanctified imagination, but you remember, imagine being a recent convert, being led to the Lord by these men. Oh man, they teach me about the Messiah. I believe in this Messiah. I'm going to become a Christian. And then you become a Christian, you watch your leaders get stoned. Would you be a little scared? I'd be freaking out. I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure about this. In fact, our text implies this. Look, at it. it says in verse 22, they were strengthening the souls. Why would souls need to be strengthened? Because they're weak. They encourage them to continue in the faith. Why would they need to do that? Because there's temptation to give up, to quit. And it makes complete sense why they would. But then Paul and Barnabas, Paul in particular, gives them a perspective on trials. It's this last action that they took that we really need to hear this morning. Verse 22, and saying... That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Man, the kingdom of God, that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we all want. 
for God to finally come and reign over all earth again, vanquishing Satan, sin, the final enemy, death being destroyed. We want the kingdom of God. Who doesn't want the kingdom of God? That sounds great. But it's that word must, isn't it? Look at it again. We, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, yes, is there another way? Like, do we have to go through? Isn't there like a, isn't there like a, a round trip? Can we go like the long route around the trials and tribulations? Do we have to go through? It reminds me of uh, the story in C.S. Lewis's um, The Silver Chair, the part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. You may have read this, but there's this character, character Jill Poe. She goes to Narnia, follows her friend Eustace there, and along the way, she gets lost, starts getting very thirsty. She's starting to get dehydrated, and she thinks she's going to die. She's so thirsty. She's looking around for the stream. It's something to drink. She finally comes across the stream, and she starts to approach it, ready to get a drink, and she looks up, and there on the other side of the stream is a ginormous lion, Aslan. And she's like, ah, I don't know about this. She's so thirsty. She's like, I could either die of thirst, but, but this lion's going to eat me. He's terrifying. And the lion speaks. Come on, come get a drink. She's like, I, I don't know. And he tries to convince her. And she says this, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? She said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming in another step near. I suppose I must go and look for, for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And so often we want to find another way. We want another stream. We don't want to do it this way. We want to go a different way. But our text tells us it's through trials. And I think as Christians, we get the concept that God's grace is there for us in our trials. You all have testimonies. We share that. We're like, yes, God's there to comfort me in trials. But what I'm saying this morning is it's deeper than that. I'm not saying there's not just grace for your suffering. I'm saying there's grace in your suffering, through your suffering. I know that sounds counterintuitive because we say God is not the author of sin, which he's not. What I'm saying is God is so sovereign and so for you that he's going to take your trials, he's going to take your suffering and show you, I am for you even in this. I can turn this terrible thing that's happened to you for your good. I love how David Paulison puts it in his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering. I strongly encourage you to read this book. He says, God will surprise you. He will make you stop. You will struggle. He will bring you up short. You will hurt. He will take his time. You will grow in faith and in love. He will deeply delight you. You will find the process harder than you ever imagined and better. 
That's the God who's for you in your trials. See, he could have left you to yourself and your own devices. He could have left you to to figure out life on your own, to try to grow on your own, but instead he's going to allow trials in your life. So what I want to do this morning, I can't go super deep on this. There's been entire books written about this topic, but I just want to give you six ways that trials are a demonstration of God's grace to you. You can write these down. You can take a picture of them if that's easier. But the first is this. God uses trials to teach us to need him. God uses trials to teach us to need him. My dad used to say all the time, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. Second is this. God uses trials to cast down the false idols of our hearts. And it's those idols that if they were left there in your heart to fester and grow, those idols would kill you. God uses trials to expose sin, those sins that lead to death. God uses trials to teach us patience and endurance. David Paulson puts it this way in his book. We 21st century people are hasty folk. We like things to happen fast. We want problems to have quick solutions so we can move on to something else. But God has made our souls to work on agricultural time and child-rearing time. Number five, God uses trials to make us dissatisfied with the shallow and fleeting pleasures of the world. And God uses trials to strengthen our faith in him. And all those signs, all those things he's doing show that God is for you. It is an act of grace of God towards you to give you those things. And listen, I know this is hard. We've walked through deep trials, many of us. I bet you by, if I had asked for a show of hands, every hand could, would raise up and say, I know someone who's left the faith because of a trial. And I get that. I know people who've done that. What I'm telling you is that in those trials, it's not God who caused them to leave. God is for you in your trials. So this morning, I want to challenge you. Take heart in your trials. Take heart. God is using it for your good and his glory. For your good and his glory. So the first demonstration of God's grace for you in your gospel ministry is in your trials. The second is this. He demonstrates his grace for you in your church. Look at verse 23 with me. Luke writes this, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the new sheep here needed a shepherd. Paul and Barnabas came, they strengthened, encouraged them, they taught them on sufferings. And they didn't just say like, all right, there you go, guys. Peace out. Best of luck. See you in a couple years on our next go around. No, they, they, they needed continual strengthening, continual encouraging. Because shepherding and discipleship, making people like Christ, takes a lifetime. It just doesn't end. So what does he do? He sets up leaders. He gives them shepherds. And here you see that the church is organized. It's very popular in our culture. And I get it. I was there for a while to think like church is just like, you know, all of us believers. And, you know, you see in the New Testament, there's just doing life together and just hanging out. So like me and my friends, you know, drinking coffee and playing 
What do you guys play on Saturdays? X-Wing or something? Yeah. Okay. You're playing games or watching sports and people do that. And like, nah, see, we're the church. It's just Christians together. But when I look at this text, there's more to that. There's clearly an organized intentionality here. There's a structure. And this local body of believers in each of these community, each of, each of these cities are given leadership to help them grow and become more like Christ. There's an organization. God didn't leave them aimless to figure out spirituality and discipleship on their own. He gave them leaders that helped them show them the way. Godly, mature men were raised up and taught to how to oversee them. But not only was the church organized, it was gathered. Jump down to 27. We'll get here again, but I want to just point this out. So Paul and Barnabas at this point are back in Antioch. And it says, when they arrived and gathered the church together. There's a gathering. The church isn't the church unless we're gathered. And this is hard because we just came out of a pandemic and people were spread apart and, and, and we needed to for a while. But a lot of Christians are having a hard time getting back together, but that's where we belong. It's us together in person. See this? You have a body. Raise your hands. Go like this. Go like this. See, this is a body and you are an enfleshed person. You have a body and God gave you a body and those bodies are meant to be around other bodies. You aren't ones and zeros. You're a person, and the church is gathered. And we see here in this text that Paul and Barnabas needed to go back to the people that sent them to share in the joys of God's work with them. Remember just the other night, I was uh, in my small group, and we're in our men's mutual ministry time, and we're sitting there, just, you know, typical mutual ministry, sharing what we're going through, and I had two guys in that group confess to the rest of us they're struggling with deep loneliness. And the rest of us sitting there were cut to the heart. Because there I am in mutual ministry, in a small group where the deepest community is supposed to happen. I have two guys confessing they're struggling with loneliness and the rest of us are sitting there shocked because we have dropped the ball. We have the remedy. They are lonely and none of us had done anything to reach out to them. The church should be the least loneliest place in the universe. This is where community happens. And you have a lonely culture. You have lonely neighbors. And that God has given you the church to meet those needs. This is part of God, gospel ministry. It's being intentional. And not just reaching out to your unbelieving neighbors, but reaching out to the person sitting in the chairs next to you. The men and women in your own church need you. Everyone here is facing a trial of some sort. And they need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, this isn't a new theme here. We teach on the importance of church and community often. So, and I get this. I get this sentiment. I'm sure that it's a little bit like watching a McDonald's commercial telling you how much you need a Big Mac. Right? Like, Come on, Drew, this is like job security for you. Of course you want people to come to church. Like, I really do like my job. I want to keep this job. But I'm not telling you that. We don't preach this and teach this because 
we just want to keep our jobs. We preach and teach it because it's here in the Bible. And God is giving you the church because he knows you need it. Because, listen, he is for you. And he's giving you the church. In this uh, awesome book, another one, I'm just throwing books to you guys this morning. I like books, so deal with it. Uh, his book, Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential, by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. Jonathan Lehman writes this about his experience at church, why he fell in love with his church. He said, this congregation, its loves and commitments offered me a picture of a different kind of life. I had lived to serve myself. They lived to serve God and others. I used my words to show off and criticize. They used their words to encourage. I talked about God as if he were a chapter of philosophy. They talked about God as if they knew him. I wanted to enjoy the weekend party. They wanted to enjoy Christ. Can we say that about our church? I hope we strive for that. I hope we can. So let me give you another list here. I'll go through this one a little faster. I try. Uh, I'll try my best. Six reasons why your church is a demonstration of God's grace. I'll go through these. Uh, the first is this. It is not good for you to be alone, so God gave you other people. You can't see yourself as clearly as you think, so God gave you others who see you better. Number three, you are a finite being with limitations. God gave you others to do what you can't. Number four, you are prone to wander, so God gave you others to help you stay on the path. Number five, you get tired in gospel ministry, so God gave you others to strengthen and encourage you. Have you felt that? Have you had those weeks where like you can barely make it to Saturday, and then Saturday comes and you find that Saturday is not a day of rest, it's just another day of things to do, and you struggle, you come in Sunday morning, you barely make it in the room, you're weak, you're weary, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I prayed for you this week. They didn't know what your week was like, but they prayed for you. And they come and they gave you that hug that you didn't know you needed until that moment. And God's saying, I am for you. That's why they're here. Number six, you can't reach your city on your own. So God gave you others to help reach the lost. Another quote from Rediscovered Church this is from Colin Hansen. He says, more than anything else, your non-Christian friends need not just your gospel words, but also a gospel community testifies to the truth of those gospel words. You want them to watch the life of your church and say, God really does change people. And he really is building a just and righteous city here in the church. We preach the gospel. We need to use words. It's not a gospel without words, but we need to live the gospel and people need to see it when they come here. I want to say there's many, many who have been hurt by the church, and I understand that. Many of you have probably been hurt by the church. Because the church is made up of humans, just like you, who aren't perfect, who sin, who are still striving to be like Christ. But the church is the bride of Christ. He bought the church with the price of his life. So if you're hurting, I want to encourage you to seek help. 
You can come talk to one of us elders. We'd love to help you work through those issues. We have a series we did a couple years ago. We've talked about this before called When Church Hurts. You can find that on our website. Encourage you to go check that out. We want you to find help if you've been hurt. But listen, God is working in you through your church. He really is. So be all in. So the second demonstration of God's grace for your gospel ministry is your church. The third is this, his work, his work. Let's keep reading verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. So you see in verses 24 through 25, kind of like this quick overview, kind of this, the, the little trek that they made on their way back to Antioch. Antioch is interesting because that's the church that launched them. That's the church that sent them out on their ministry. So they're essentially, they made it home. They did the big old loop. If you look at a map, you can see they did this big old loop and they finally made it back to Antioch. If you go back to Acts 13, you can read about this commissioning that they had where the church laid hands on them and sent them out. But what's interesting is how Luke rephrases that commissioning. Look at this. Verse 26 again. In Antioch is where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They commended, meaning they came over them and they said, all right, you go out. We're going to say, God, your grace carry them. It's, it's your grace that we're asking you to, to motivate them, to send them, to carry them on, to do this ministry. To do what? To fulfill God's work. It says that the work that they had fulfilled. Notice it didn't say the work that they had started, the work that they had completed, just fulfilled. Because it's not their work. Whose work was it? It was God's work. And how was it done? By God's grace. Commentator C.H. Linsky uh, summarizes this verse great when he says this. The Holy Spirit had required their services and the church at Antioch had given up those two teachers for this work. They had been given over to the grace of God for the work. God's grace was to use them as its tools and instruments. And this is a true and expressive description of all missionaries They are the instruments through whom God's grace works. Not they work in the last analysis, but grace. See, God is working right now. Did you know that? In this city, in this church, God is working. As C.S. Lewis would say, Aslan is on the move. Things are happening. And what God is inviting you to do is to be a tool of his, just to be used, to be part of this work. But it's not your work. We're just his vessels. I had a youth pastor in high school who used to say, God is the heart surgeon. We're just the scalpel. He's the one that does the work. We're just the tool. Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7. The church in Corinth is really struggling. Do I follow this leader? Do I follow that leader? This guy seems to be great. This guy seems to be uh, knowing what's going on. I really like Paul. I like Apollos. And Paul says this, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters it as anything, but only God who gives 
the growth. And I'm telling you this morning, God's work, God's work is his demonstration that he is for you. Let me explain how. Because when it's his work, you don't need to stress or be anxious about the results. You are just called to faithfulness. See, the pressure's off. And so often our anxiety and the pressure we put on ourselves is, is what I'm doing working? I'm, I'm saying these things to my kid. I'm trying to disciple my kid. I'm trying to reach my neighbor. I'm trying to teach these kids and redemption kids. I'm, I'm trying to do these things for the Lord. Is it working? And God's saying, you don't do the work. Leave it up to me. Just be faithful. I produce the fruit. The pressure's off. See, you aren't called to change hearts. You aren't called to save souls. You aren't called to free people from addictions. You're not called because you can't. You're just called to be a vessel. And you're called to bring God's word and the message of grace found in the gospel to bear on the life situations of everyone you come across. Now listen to me, this is, this is not a call to laziness. We can be tempted to think, oh, you know, if God does it all, I don't have to do anything. First of all, that's, that's the opposite of faithfulness. The second is this, the Bible would actually have none of that. Paul again writes in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they preached unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So God is the one who saves. He's saving people through people who preach the gospel. You're just the messenger. So listen, church, I want you to pursue faithfulness and trust God with the fruit. Pursue faithfulness, trust God with the fruit. So we've looked at three demonstrations of God's grace that he, showing that he is for you in your trials, your church, his work. The last is this, his glory. Now you heard just earlier this morning that we are very passionate about God's glory. It's in our, in our mission. That's what we claim we're all about. We believe that's what we, our life is about. How is that a demonstration of grace? And glory wasn't in this text, so are you making it up, Drew? I'm not. I'll show you why. Verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas gathered that church together in Antioch. and They had some news to share. And what did they do? They were declaring they declared, they spoke, they had a story to tell. This is the same idea as, as when we proclaim the gospel. We have a news, a message to share about events that had happened. And they told the story about what they experienced. And what they experienced is what God did. Meaning they proclaimed God's glory. They glorified God. They said, here is the things that God was doing. He got the praise, what he had done, that he had opened doors to the Gentiles. And there's a lot of other stories they could have told, right? You go back and read 
everything that happened to them, they could have told about John Mark bailing on them. They could have told about the healings that they saw being rejected by Jews, being almost stoned to death. These are all stories that they could have told, but they didn't tell any of those stories. They told one story. This is what we saw God do. And Luke wants us to know that God was the hero of the story. His glory is on display. And what I'm telling you is that is a deep demonstration of that God is for you. And you say, how was that possible? Well, consider the stories he didn't tell. He didn't tell the stories of his accomplishments. And they accomplished a lot. They established churches in multiple cities. They led hundreds, if not thousands, of people to Christ. They stood up to Jewish and secular authorities. They, they persevered. They overcame adversity. They were courageous. They were brave. Did you hear any of that? They could have told the story of trials. This is a hard one for us to swallow because some of us are in the midst of trials right now. And it's all consuming in your life, and I get that. We also live in a culture that makes victimhood like a badge of honor, like the more trials I've experienced, the more clout I have. And the reality is just persecution and trials, they're, they're hard. But Paul and Barnabas, like I mentioned before, were stoned and left for dead. They were slandered and chased out of cities. They were hunted down, taunted, persecuted. And when they returned to Antioch, they didn't declare a word about it. In our culture, that would be unheard of if somebody experienced that. Because we want to know, we want people to know how much we've suffered. We want people to feel bad for us and, and how much we've endured. Look at it. And we wear it like, man, look at how you've overcome adversity. You've accomplished so much in spite of all you've gone through. Look how great you are. You've suffered so much. And I'm not downplaying real suffering. People really suffered. Please hear me on that. And if you've suffered, it was wrong. If you have, are the victim of somebody else's sin, that is wrong. And God will judge that justly. What I'm saying is for Paul, who experienced worse than most anybody in this room will ever experience, had a bigger vision than that for himself and his purpose in life. Because Paul had one story to tell and everything that experienced is one story he told, and that was the story of God's grace. See, he saw everything he went through as just small movements in God's greater story. For Paul, God was the hero of the story. It was about what God was doing. And that's what I mean by God's glory. It doesn't mean that you aren't significant, that you don't matter. If you don't believe me, go back to point one. You matter to God, but it's his story. He's the hero. And that is a demonstration of his grace because left to our own devices, we seek our own glory and we can't bear the weight of that. We can't bear the weight of finding meaning in life in ourselves, trying to figure out what every circumstance means for this narrative of my life that I think is about me. Listen, the universe being all about you would crush you. 
The pride that would come from it being about you would kill you, whether you're the pride from being the hero, the pride from being the victim. God tells us pride comes before the fall. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, God loves you too much to let this world be all about you. And ultimately, God shows that this glory is for you because only God's glory will satisfy you. It was the very reason you were created. How good of a God would he be if he wouldn't give you the very thing that you need, the very thing that gives meaning to your life? His glory, him. So I'm going to give you some just practical things. Make God the protagonist of the stories you tell. In your gospel ministry, in your daily life, when you talk to yourself, declare what God has done. In your successes, give God the glory. In your failures, in the times you've been a victim, declare God's faithfulness to you. If you made it through a trial, God carried you through. Be free of the burden of trying to figure out what your life story means and making yourself the center of everything. Many of us are exhausted because we're trying to make our lives about us. I want us all to tell one story. Just one. The story of God's grace and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, uh, living a life of gospel ministry, being intentional, is not easy. And I'm telling you, so you can't say, no one said it was, no one told me it wasn't going to be easy. I'm telling you, it's not going to be easy. But God is for you. And if you're still having trouble seeing it, I want you to look to the cross of Christ. Because listen, on, on the cross... Christ suffered under the greatest trial of all trials, bearing the weight, the sin of the world on his shoulders, feeling God's wrath poured out on him for our sin, for our shame. Christ died for the church. He bought her with his life. He lives to make intercession constantly for his church, and it was accomplished through the cross. And on the cross, Christ was doing whose work? His Father's work of saving people, saving you, saving me. And on the cross of Christ, he displays God's glory. You want to say, man, where is God's glory? Look at the cross. On the cross, God was the just and the justifier. He was holy, gracious, merciful, loving, wrathful, It all was there on display at the cross at the same time. God is for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so big and so good and so loving and so sovereign that even in the difficulties of life, even in brokenness of a gathered people, the church, You show us your grace. And you can turn the ugliest things into testimonies of your glory, of your greatness. 
And I pray that this church body would be a body that is motivated by your grace, that we would see your grace, and that we would share the good news of Jesus Christ to each other, to our neighbors, to the city, and to the world. In the name of your Son that we pray, amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.